In our society today, we have made such an idol of the easy life. We've made such a god of the easy life. We dream of having an easier life. We work hard so that we can have an easy life. We have so many technologies and conveniences to help life be easier, to help it go better, to help it go smoother, to help us be more efficient, to make us happier, to entertain us. When things are easy, we feel like we've achieved something. Yeah, man, that made that easy. That car made that easy. That computer made that easy. That cell phone made that easy. That technology made that easy. That money made that easy. And it's almost like easy is the goal. Easy is the God. The vacation is the goal. The weekend is the goal. The retirement is the goal. Those things become our idols. We're worshiping easy. But if you think about it, in the beginning, when God created heavens and earth and mankind, one of the results of man's sin was that God said, life is not going to be easy for you here on this planet. Life will not be easy. He cursed it, saying, I will make life difficult for you as a consequence of your sin. You want to rebel against me? You don't want to think that I am God? Then you will work hard for everything instead of having to me hand it to you. You will work the ground and thistles and thorns and hard soil will fight against you. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll bring out a harvest. You'll make a living. Whereas before, God said, eat of the fruit of the trees that I've given you. So in God's presence, God is our provider. And apart from God, we've got to provide for ourselves. And we've got to work hard to do it. It's hard work to make a living. It's hard work to make enough money to survive. But if God has cursed work, then is it possible for it ever to be easy? Will life ever be easy? Can work become easy? And if we're striving so hard to make work easy, are we really trying to get out of the punishment? Are we really trying to avoid the consequences of the curse? Are we trying to say, yeah, I know, God, you... You told us that without you, things are going to be hard. But look what I made. I made all this great stuff that makes my life easy. So your punishment doesn't matter to me at all. It's like a parent who grounds their child saying, go to your room. I'm taking away your freedom. And so the child stockpiles in his room all the candy he wants to eat, all the cans of soda he wants to drink, all the video games that he wants to play, all the books that he wants to, watch, wants to read, all the shows he wants to watch. And he's like, fine, lock me in my room. It's going to be great. You're not learning a lesson in that situation if you're that child. You're trying to avoid the impact of the consequences. And we've talked for a couple of times, a couple of discussions about technology and how it relates to us and our faith. And specifically in this conversation, I'd like to challenge us to really consider 
whether we're using technology to free us to sin. Whether we're using technology to prove to ourselves that we can do it on our own. Whether we're using technology to escape the curse. And therefore, whether technology is actually a hindrance to us actually getting to know God. Because when parents give their children consequences, it's not just to punish them for the sake of punishing us, it's for them to learn a lesson. And if we're doing our best to make our lives easy enough that we never have to learn things like perseverance or endurance or faithfulness, if we never have to suffer any consequences, what will we learn? How will we mature? How will we grow? If God says, don't do this, and if you do, it's going to be hard, and then we find ways to get around it, aren't we undermining the good that he's trying to teach us? Recognizing what sin is, recognizing consequences, and growing into holiness? sanctification, becoming more like him? If we make life easy enough without him, will we really desire him? Those are the questions I want us to ask. And if you think back to the curses at the very beginning in Genesis 3, he said to the woman, he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. So there's specific penalties, there's specific pains and struggles as a result of being a mother that weren't there before. He also says, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So instead of there being this perfect harmony between man and woman, there's going to be friction and tension and vying for superiority. Instead of partnership, there'll be authority. Instead of unity, there'll be competition. It was a result. It was not meant to be that way. It's a result of sin. And to Adam, he says, because you listened and you've eaten, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's be careful not to let our conveniences, our modern conveniences, our technologies of convenience be things that lead us to sin freely, be things that separate us from God, and be things that prevent us from being sanctified and becoming more and more in His image every day. So let's specifically hone in on learning a lesson. You know, consequences are things that teach us lessons that we couldn't otherwise learn, right? When there's no discipline or consequences for a sin, what's actually being taught is that the sin isn't that bad because nothing bad happened. You know, if a parent never disciplines a child, the child learns that, well, it didn't really matter, and so I can do whatever I want. And the behavior that results in that child is terrible because there's freedom to sin. It was made too easy Whereas the discipline would have made the sin harder, which was better for the child and a lesson they needed to learn. Can we learn a lesson if we never experience a consequence? So take it from parents and children and think about our society, our culture of today. Isn't it by and large the ethic of our day that something is wrong only if it has negative consequences? I think it is. Whether that's explicitly taught or just implied in how we live, 
You can do whatever you want, but just don't hurt someone else. You can believe whatever you want, just don't offend someone else. If what you're doing makes you happy and doesn't harm anyone else, then it's not wrong, it's right for you. You do what's right for you, I'll do what's right for me, you believe what's right for you, I'll believe what's right for me. And this relativism is a result of us just feeling like anything goes because nothing's really wrong, because nothing really bad is happening. But is that true? If there isn't a negative consequence, does that mean the thing wasn't wrong? The problem comes in when we, when we use our science and our, our human intelligence to eliminate consequences which then enable us to say that something isn't wrong. I'm going to use a very practical example here. An example would be that the world says that it's only wrong to have sex outside of marriage if you get pregnant. Sex outside of marriage, just sex with whomever, is just two consenting adults enjoying themselves. And it doesn't impact anyone else in a harmful way, and so therefore it's not wrong. But then if a child comes, well, now there's complications. As soon as there's a consequence for that sin, there's all sorts of things that have to be discussed. And enter into this conversation the technology, if you want to call it that way, of birth control. I'm not saying that birth control is either right or wrong. It's a technology. And so that's what we have to understand our motives for using technology. Can birth control be used by people to free them to sin without having to suffer any consequences? Absolutely. And it does. Not fearing any sort of consequence, you know, how your entire life would change if a little one shows up, would entirely change the way you look at sex. If there was no such thing as the invention of any birth control technologies, and every time two people had sex, there was the possibility that there might be a child coming nine months later. How would that impact the dating scene in our society? Would people be as freed to sin in whatever way they want? Or perhaps would the consequences of this life-altering change of now being a parent modify their behavior? Now, it's possible there just might be a million more babies. <laughs> that might just be the consequence because sinful behavior being what it is, we might just keep doing what we're doing. But I, I would guess that there would be many instances where before that relationship was consummated, one or both parties would stop and really think, is this what I want to do? What if there is a baby nine months from now? Am I ready for that? So I think that this technology can be used by people to free them to sin without consequences. But that doesn't mean that it's not sinful. It doesn't mean that it's not wrong. It doesn't mean there aren't other consequences to us. Ask a husband or a wife after they're married, if any of their previous sexual relationships have impacted their current marriage? And the answer is yes. Whether or not there was ever any children born is another question. That would be another impact to their marriage. But don't just say if there's no baby, there's no sin. But the consequences certainly would help us recognize the importance and the sacredness of something that in the context of marriage makes family and is beautiful, 
Yeah, there's certainly a lot of changes that come when a baby enters a, a married couple's lives, but there's not the same shock, perhaps, or fear, what do I do now, or the fact that these two people, if it's a dating relationship, aren't bound together in any sort of covenantal way. There's no promise of being together. So it brings fear instead of excitement. There's a baby. In one scenario, someone's celebrating, and in another scenario, someone's scared. And for all those people that fall into the scared category, how many of them consider the technologies of abortion as one of their options? I don't want this consequence of my sin. What do I do? I financially can't support a child. I didn't want it. Here are my options. Keep the baby, put the baby up for adoption, or abort the baby. Sin can lead to more sin. It most of the time is exactly what it does. It's like cancer. It just spreads. One bad thing becomes two, which becomes ten, which becomes a hundred. And next thing you know, we're looking back and we're like, I thought I was just doing something because it made me feel good. I didn't think there's anything wrong with that. And God's like, no, my law is the perfect law that gives freedom. That's from the book of James. Meaning within the boundaries of the law, within the, the confines of love God and love your neighbor, which is Jesus' law, there's freedom. Do whatever you want within those boundaries. But when you step outside of the boundaries, there's all sorts of unintended consequences, unforeseen consequences. And we need to check ourselves to make sure that we are not avoiding consequences. If what I see on TV or what I read isn't ever seen or read by anyone else, is it wrong if it's just me? Well, ask all those thousands and thousands of people today that are addicted to pornography. Does that impact you at all in a negative way? Even if no one knows? Even if there's no child as a consequence? How are you and God doing in your relationship? How are you feeling about yourself? What levels of shame or secrecy are you living with? How is that impacting your marriage or your parenthood? Yeah, it's not just consequences. God knows good and evil, right and wrong. And when we cling to him, we realize there's so much more to it, and he's protecting us by showing us what sin is. It's a beautiful privilege for God to show us what a sin looks like so that we can know how bad it is, so that we can try to avoid it in the future. Romans 7 talks about this. Romans 7, 8 through 13 says, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I mean, like sin's a non-factor where there's no one saying, hey, this is wrong. Then you, you might not know it. You might not see it. It's just absent. It's dead. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. It like appeared. And then I died. The very commandment, so God's goodness, his truth, his law, that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me 
through what was good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Another translation says sin might be utterly sinful. It's such a gracious thing for God to show us sin, what it looks like, because then we can see how utterly sinful it is, meaning how bad it is, how destructive it kills us. And so we might want to just avoid all consequences. We might just want to like close our eyes to the concept of sin and our ears to the concept of sin. But it's really a great, great mercy that God would show us, kind of hold the mirror up to our face and see, look how bad sin is. Can you see it? Because it's bad whether we see it or not. So it's a great mercy to be shown what we really look like so that we can hate sin with all of our heart, so that we can come to love God with all of our heart and fight against sin with all of our heart. And it does come back down to our heart. It's all about the heart. Let's go back to our birth control technologies again. Aren't there also examples where birth control technologies could be a blessing? Be a good thing? What about for that mother who gives birth and has so many complications in the process that afterwards the doctors say, you cannot give birth again. You will not survive it. And so she and her husband use birth control technologies as a way to save her life, to enjoy the child that God has given them, to raise their family and grow together. A life is saved through that. Same technology, totally different application. What about a poorer family who knows they don't have the resources to care for the 16 or 18 children they might have through the course of their marriage if they don't use birth control? Isn't it then caring for who the children God has given them? Being wise and stewarding their money and their resources to love their children? by not having too many that they can't afford? Again, it's a heart thing. What's too many? That's just between that person and God. But we should be able to recognize that technology isn't the enemy. Enemy is sin. The Bible says sin is crouching at the door waiting to pounce on us. Let's be careful to not avoid learning our lessons by getting out of it this way or that way. We need to recognize consequences. We need to see sin as utterly sinful in order for us to recognize the beauty of God and to pray for Jesus to make us the righteousness of God. So there's one point that we need to make. Let's move on to the second point here. This has to do with a Christian work ethic. Many of our technologies are developed in order to make life easier, right? As we've been saying. But... As a counterpoint to that, isn't there something that's kind of God-honoring about working hard? Isn't it kind of a noble thing to be willing to work with our hands? Not that a blue-collar job is a better job than a white-collar job, or the carpenter is a, a more superior person than to the office worker because they're doing something with their hands, but isn't there something about being willing to work hard with our hands that's very natural, and very much how God has made us. We could look at it as kind of like a sort of a, a blue-collar Christian ethic that honors physical acts of labor or service. 
There's some scriptures that speak to this. How about Colossians 3, 23 and 24? Whatever you do, work heartily as it, as working for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So everything you do, this isn't necessarily hands-on labor or physical sort of thing. It speaks to the working hard. If you're in your cubicle working hard, typing hard, work for God. Don't work as if you're working for your boss. Don't work as if you're working for your paycheck. Work as if you're in the temple courts, in the presence of God, working to honor him. Make your work your worship. All right, how about 1 Corinthians 4, 11 to 16? This is the Apostle Paul talking. He says, To the present hour, we apostles, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and we're buffeted and we're homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, or accused, or condemned, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, now I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, but I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So he's saying, imitate the way that we respond when people attack us. Imitate the life we have being willing to work hard with our own hands. Imitate the life we have of not accusing or condemning others, but just quietly and faithfully and honorably serving God in the most humble of ways. He's saying, be like me in how I act, in how I speak, in how I respond, and in how I work. And we don't have to make it the only point that he's making there is that the whole passage is about working with your hands, but it is part of the passage. It's one of the four or five things that he's listing as what he wants them to imitate. People that work hard. Work as unto God. Work with your hands. Be willing to get your hands dirty might be another way that we could say it. Ephesians 4.28 has an interesting twist on this as well. It says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let them labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. So take those thieves who didn't know God and use their hands to rob and to steal and to serve their own purposes and redeem those hands. Make those hands instruments of God to provide for themselves, to work hard, but also so they may share with anyone who is in need. Hands that give instead of hands that take. Now we may not think of ourselves as thieves, but are our hands mostly busy with taking? When you work and you get the paycheck, are you working hard with your hands so that you can have what you need? Are our hands just totally selfish, filling and grabbing and grasping? Or are our hands open and giving and providing? This speaks to thieves. It speaks to the new creation of Christ, you know, him redeeming what once was used for evil and using it now for good, but it speaks to all of us. I don't know if we think of ourselves as thieves when we're just making a paycheck, but doesn't it depend on what we do with that paycheck as to whether we have just kept all that money? If we're just grabbing and grasping, if we're hoarding things in our barns and our attics and our basements and garages, but we're not giving and loaning and lending and sharing, then really are we just stealing those things that could have gone to someone else? 
What does it mean to be a thief? And what are our hands for? Hands are for doing honest work, not just for our benefit, but for others. Or think about what Jesus himself said. He's describing this final judgment where he himself will judge people and separate them for eternity from heaven or hell. And he says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus' criteria for who gets into heaven and who doesn't are the practical ways that we show that God's love is in us. Practical things. He doesn't have in that list those who know the most verses of the Bible or those who are the smartest or those who are the purest. Those things come from the Holy Spirit. He gives us knowledge. He gives us purity. He gives us the righteousness of God. And what we're supposed to do with that Holy Spirit is we're supposed to work and love and serve the people around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if Jesus' criteria for who gets into heaven is based upon people using their hands to make meals and to give clothes and to provide shelter and to care for sick people and inmates in prison, you've got to use your hands for those things. They're not intellectual. They're physical and tangible and practical. You know the, the familiar passage, James 1.27, religion that is pure before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself from being unstained by the world. Now, true religion is caring for widows and orphans. That's a hands-on task. And we have to be ready to get our hands dirty to do that. And yes, there is the element of us stepping out of the world, us being purified. But it's not just about us. And our faith cannot be just about us. It has to be about God winning our souls for heaven and us winning those around us for God. So when we look at it this way, and we look at this kind of work ethic, this practical Christian behavior pattern that, that Jesus is looking for and that the Bible teaches, can't we recognize the fact that a lot of the time we use technology to be lazy and get out of having to do things? We want the ride-on mower because we don't want to push ours around the backyard. We want to have the TV with the remote because we don't want to walk up and press a button on the set. We want things to make our lives easier, but the Bible is saying working hard is a God-honoring thing. So is it possible that if we're looking for this easy life that we might lose that godly work ethic? Is it possible that if all of our technologies are trying to make our lives better and easier that we might lose things like just gritting it out when a project is tough? When the work is just menial? 
when there's no great reward or it doesn't make us feel very happy or pleasant to be involved in it, just something that has to be done. Maybe for us or maybe for someone else. Maybe your neighbor asks you to help them move and you're just dreading going up and down those stairs. But it's not about whether Saturday can be easy for you. That's not the goal. And it is God honoring to work hard and to sweat and to get cobwebs in your face, carrying things up and down from the attic and the basement, and to be covered in dirt for the sake of someone else who needed your help because you love them the way you love Jesus. And you're working at that moving day the way you'd work as if you were moving stuff into heaven for God. We have to be careful that ease doesn't become laziness. If we're not willing to lift a finger to do anything ourselves in our home, are we not going to perhaps be willing to lift a finger to help someone who really needs us? Then all of a sudden our laziness is not just impacting us in our home. Now it's sinning against someone else and it's failing to live out true religion the way the Bible defines it. And if you really think about it, our laziness in our home, it's not without consequences. When a spouse has to continually beg us and remind us and nag us, whether it's husband or wife, to do something that is never getting done, aren't we really sinning there too? And our laziness, our desire not to have to work hard, isn't that actually letting the family down? What if we worked hard at the dishes as if we were working for God? Do you think that would make any impact on the other members of the family in a positive way? What if we are lazy when it comes to the dishes? Do you think that'll make an impact on the rest of the family in any way? Of course it will. And you know what? When you see in your family members that eye roll or you see that frustration or when they're mad at you for dropping the ball again. That's good for us to see. That's the consequence of our laziness. And when we see it in their face and hear it in their voice, that's where we learn our lesson. Wow, when I didn't do that thing, which didn't seem like a big deal to me, look what it did to them. And I love this person. I'm willing to do anything for this person. And if that mean, anything means dishes or laundry or mowing or bill paying or house painting or homework tutoring, or anything. Of course I'd be willing to do it, because we Christians, we work hard. Jesus worked hard. Paul and the apostles worked hard. They worked hard with their own hands, and they weren't too lazy to help when people needed it. And their families and communities were blessed because they were hard workers, not just looking for the easy way out. if we're conditioned to be lazy and comfortable because of inventions like cars or heat and air conditioning or smartphones, are we going to look for the easy way to handle problems when they arise? Where will we learn the value of endurance and hard work and perseverance and faithfulness that are so essential to healthy marriages, that are so essential to effective parenting, that are so essential for a strong faith, so essential for making a difference in this world. If we're just looking for easy, your marriage will die. 
If we're looking for easy, our kids will suffer. If we're looking for easy, our faith will struggle. If we're looking for easy, we'll make no difference in the world. But if you think about that, so many of our marriages and parenting and faith and community impact looks exactly like that. Well, maybe we're just trying to find the easy way out. Maybe it's simply we are being conditioned to the God of ease. Worshiping at the God of ease. Worshiping at the idol of ease. Maybe you and I, even if we say we're Christians, are practicing idolatry instead of being made by God to work and working for him with all of our heart. We are avoiding the consequences of that curse. Sidetracking it, side-dooring it, going around it, undermining it, covering it, avoiding it, so that we can have things easy. And in the process, all the important stuff falls apart. What do we want? Do we want easy or do we want better? I don't think we can have both at the same time. 1 John 3, 16 to 18 says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, you know, possessions, material stuff, and he sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk is cheap. If someone needs help, help them. Don't just say, I hope things work out. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. If someone needs money, give them money. If someone needs a car, give them one of your cars. If someone needs a cell phone, give them one of your cell phones. If someone needs clothes, go home, open the drawer, take out clothes, and drive to their house and hand it to them. If someone needs food, give it to them. If someone needs tutoring or help, or assistance in any way. Just give it to them because that's how we know what love is. We felt love when God says, you know what, sinful person, I love you. And I'm going to give you the freedom and the grace that you don't deserve. And you're going to become one of my family. And it's going to be great. We have a great future ahead for us. Welcome to the family. So that's what love looks like. Our love usually looks like words and talk. I love you. Spouse, I love you, child. I love you, God. But well, where is the action that proves it? In what practical ways do you love your spouse? List them. In what practical ways do you love your children? List them. And don't just say, I provide a paycheck. We need to practically, tangibly love people face-to-face -face with their needs. And most of the important needs are not just financial. And if all we do is expect to give a check, give some cash, and have someone just be fine because that's all they needed, then we don't understand what it means to love. And we're certainly not loving in the same ways that Jesus said are his criteria for what real salvation looks like. 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Let us throw aside every weight, throw aside the sin, and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Jesus' work ethic. That's Jesus' physical, tangible, sacrificial, agape love in action. He didn't just say it. He followed through. And it cost him everything, and he didn't care. It's not about the cost. It's about the purpose. It's about the goal set before us. Why are we doing what we do? Why do you love your spouse? Why do we love our kids? Because God gave them to us, yes. Because God first loved, loved us, yes. More than that, deeper than that, we love because it's become our nature. We have become like God who is love, and through us, his love shines into the world. And if we don't love in that way, we better question whether or not we've got his love in the first place. But if we do have his love and we're not shining it, Shame on us from stealing all that that was given to us to share. We don't love our spouse if we're just keeping all of God's love to ourselves. We don't really love our kids if we're keeping all that love to ourselves. Love has to be shown, has to be given, and it shouldn't matter what the cost is. But you see, if we live in this world where all of our conveniences make us feel like things are supposed to be easy, things are supposed to be happy and comfortable when it comes to the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road, we might not be up to the task. We have to keep our eyes open and not be inadvertently falling into worshiping the God of ease. You know, this translates over into our attitudes as well. If we're conditioned to think that things are supposed to be easy and convenient and comfortable, couldn't that make us more apt to complain when things don't go the way we want them to? When our expectations aren't met, if our, in our mind, our mindset is that life is supposed to go the way I want. You know, we're, I'm in my living room and I want it to be 68 degrees or 71 degrees. It just, it's not 71 anymore. Now it's up to 72. It's way too hot in here. Oh, this heat is killing me. We have an expectation that we can set the thermostat and get exactly what we want. Press the buttons and make it happen. It's hot in the summer. We turn down the air conditioner or turn up the air conditioner. It starts getting colder and we feel relief. We want to go someplace far away. We just get in our car, put gas in the tank, and we drive. Doesn't it make us so frustrated when we sit in traffic. I can't get to where I want to go. Not going fast enough. Look at all these people slowing me down. Doesn't it make us so angry and upset when the car breaks down and we can't get from point A to point B and now I got to get a tow truck and it's going to cost us? Our expectation is that we're going to go where we want, when we want. We're going to get there when we want. And anything less than like full compliance to our desires is going to be met with our frustration, with anger, with blaming, with complaining and whining. And after our car breaks down, the next week, every conversation we have with someone is going to be us, woe is me, rolling our eyes. Oh, you should have seen what it was like. I was on the side of the highway and it was so hot. And I was there for hours. 
yeah, but you've got a car. And you live in a country where you can drive. And maybe you're going to work, so you've got work. And you're healthy. And instead of being grateful that you have all these things because your expectations weren't met, you're going to complain? Do you just want it to be easy? And whenever it's not, it's a major crisis? You know, I've had the privilege of being on a few different missions trips to foreign countries as well as within the United States. And I picture one location when I have this, this conversation and this thought just so clearly. It's in a small ghetto kind of village in northern Mexico, right near the Texas border. And all the shanties are kind of leaning up against each other. A lot of them are made of corrugated metal and wood. Most of them don't have any doors or windows. They just open in some places. People can get in and out. And the floor is dirt. It's right next to train tracks. Ten feet away from the row of housing here is the train that comes barreling by. And there's a million kids running around. Some of them have shoes. Some of them don't. Some of them have clothes. Some of them don't. Some just a t-shirt. Some just shorts. Mostly ragged all dirty, and there's glass all over the ground, and they're running around barefoot. But when you look at their faces, these beautiful children in this very impoverished community, they are joyful. They are running around and smiling and playing games in the trash. Their expectations are just that we are here, and we have each other, and that's all that I expect. That's all that I need. They're not whining and complaining about the fact that they don't have the newest TV or the newest phone or the next movie or the next video game or the best car or the better clothes. They're happy if they've got any clothes. And they don't have any of those things, but there's no expectation of a life of ease. When it's hot, it's hot out. It's not a reason to complain. It's just a description of what nature is doing at that moment. For us, when it's hot out, it's a source of complaining and whining. Why? Because our expectation is that I work hard for my money. I have all these things that make life easy. I want them to work when I want them to work. I want to be in control. We're not supposed to be complainers as Christians. And we're not supposed to care if we have the best. And when things don't go our way, we're not supposed to become critical and bitter and whine about it. We're just supposed to be content We're supposed to be people that have peace in any and every situation, but that doesn't look like us a lot of the time at all. The byproduct of going to Mexico is that when I came back, I felt bad when I complained. It bothered me to complain about, you know, going to fast food or to a restaurant, it's not made the way you want it to. You feel bad about complaining that a burger is cooked a little bit more or a little bit less than whatever you ordered because you just, your mind instantly goes back to kids that never tasted a burger. They're eating whatever they can find, whenever they can find, if they can find it. Being exposed to this reality, to the fact that all of this technology of ease and of convenience is a mirage, it's an illusion, it's not important, it's not real, it doesn't matter, and it's certainly not the big thing in life. It's just the trappings, it's a mask, it's a cover-up. When we're exposed to reality in that way, it changes our attitudes. 
So you, you instantly realize that the expectation of comfort can actually ruin us in so many ways. And experiencing hardship makes us appreciate the blessings. How can we appreciate the blessings, the high of the highs, if we haven't experienced the low of the lows? Every good gift comes from God, right? Every good and perfect gift, James 1.17 says, it's from above. Every good thing comes from God. I don't think he wants us taking his generosity for granted. I don't think he wants to see us complaining over the little stuff when he's provided us with all the big stuff and a million and one conveniences, never mind the biggest thing, eternal security, the salvation of our souls. When these bodies are long past caring, whether it's hot or cold in the ground, our souls can be rejoicing with God. If he's provided us with that, how dare we complain when something in our house breaks? With all the people around the world that don't even have a house, how dare we complain when something is inconvenient? See, this God, this idol of ease, is facilitated by all our technology. I don't know if it's created. I think probably throughout history with whatever technologies were there, people are looking for easy way out of so many things. But we live in an age where convenience is such a God. And that God is opposed to the real God. The God of convenience is opposed to the God of creation. And this world will be difficult, and things will get hard, and God will carry us through. Don't look to escape through our own means. One last point before we wrap up this conversation. The fact that life is difficult is part of God's design for giving us a passionate desire for the beauty and inspirational, immersive joy of heaven. We're not supposed to fall in love with this world. This world is a temporary thing and it's got a lot of suffering in it. But on the other side of death and resurrection for all of us, heaven's waiting. Heaven's waiting. We're supposed to be wanting something great, but what if we're just settling for something temporary? Is it possible that with all of our convenience and entertainment now that we're actually losing a taste for heaven? How many times have I heard someone say, I don't even know if I want to go to heaven. First of all, none of my friends are going to be there, so I'd rather be with my friends. And second of all, I don't want to just sit in a cloud playing a harp. No, that's not what heaven is. Heaven is the inexpressible joy and like power of being in the presence of the creator God. It's like numbing in its intensity and beauty and perfection. The best you've ever felt and the most intensely joyful you've ever been is not even a fraction of a shadow of a dream of a prayer of what heaven is going to be like. But if we love this life so much and we love all of our Netflix shows and we feel so content here and so comfortable and so complacent, what really is there more for us to want? What more could we want than what we already have? 
Our, we have our sports and our books and our music. We have the internet. We have fantasy worlds to escape into. We've got movies and shows and cars and travel and vacations. And maybe we feel like we have it all. In which case, the God of this world really has blinded us to how empty all of that is. Even if we have every bit of technology and convenience, it's just a mirage. And if we're settling for that at the expense of our soul, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? One day we're going to realize what we missed out on. It would be good for us to suffer a little now so it can give us a taste of the passion we should have for when things are really good. Revelation defines that. It says, In the end, John had a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Is that our view of heaven? It should be. It should be. Paul in Romans calls it the, the, the weight of glory. He says, I consider the sufferings now in this present age not even worthy of comparing with the eternal weight of glory. Think of God's glory as this like tangible power that when you step into it in heaven, there's an eternal weight of glory surrounding you, immersing you, carrying you, lifting you, filling you. There's nothing in this world that can compare to that. And yet we settle for so many things as if they were that. Our convenience technologies can actually rob us of our desire for glory, of our desire for heaven. But it's just like the difference between fast food and real food. You can eat a bunch of it and it might feel good, but you're going to get sicker and sicker until you die. But if you eat the real stuff, you're going to get healthier and stronger until you really can live. I challenge us to just have our eyes open to the trickiness of ease and convenience and how it sneaks in, co-ops our thinking, undermines our Christian work ethic, robs our desire for heaven, enables us to sin freely without guilt, and sets itself up as an idol where in the end we're no longer worshiping God can rob us of our good attitudes, can make us complainers, and it can undermine the fact that we're supposed to be here as Jesus' hands and feet. Challenge us to use our technologies so that we can do more for God and love Him more rather than escape the difficulties of life, some sort of escapism, and therefore then lose the reward of eternal life as well as the opportunity to make an impact in this world in his name 
while we're still here.